Today, um, we want to continue with the doctrine of Scripture, and that's really what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the different aspects of what Scripture is, and we've saw already uh, that Scripture, above everything, is, is, is uh, summed up in the word revelation, because revelation really means that God has chosen to reveal Himself. And even in that idea right there, if you believe that God has chosen to reveal Himself, you've already set yourself apart from dozens of worldviews. Uh, for example, you've already set yourself apart from deism. You guys remember we talked about deism as a worldview that teaches that there is a God, perhaps he's out there, uh, but that he is not involved in, in the creation. He's not involved in our lives, certainly doesn't care what's going on in your personal life. And uh, this was very popular um, following the Enlightenment period in England uh, leading up to the Great Awakening. The reason why I mention that is because, uh, how many of you guys have heard of George Whitfield? <laughs> so George Whitfield, uh, probably the greatest evangelist that ever lived uh, after the apostolic age, and I would say even, anyway, say maybe even, even more than the apostolic age to some degree. I mean, the, um, it's estimated that George Whitfield witnessed or preached the gospel in front of probably two, three million people. So, and this is without the use of amplification. This is just out in the open air, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, George Whitfield uh, was preaching in a context of deism. The, 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 the Great Awakening arose out of the idea of deism that was very popular among uh, uh, European liberals. And uh, that <clears throat> deism was a reaction away from Puritanism. And uh, uh, what the liberals in Europe decided to do is react against the piety of Puritanism saying that it was too legalistic, it was too strict. And, and certainly there were Puritan abuses of, of holiness that, that did you know, spill over into legalism. But what ended up happening is the concept of deism creeped into all of the, you know, especially the higher schools of learning. And what ended up happening is that the whole culture ended up adopting sort of a consciousness of deism. So they didn't think God was involved in their ethics. They didn't think God was involved in their family life. They didn't think God was involved in the politics or anything. And therefore, that gave way to a cultural reaction of complete and total uh, relativism. You guys know what relativism is, right? Relativism is the idea that... Uh, uh, there is no ultimate morality. There's no ultimate standard of right and wrong. And what does a culture look like when they adopt that position? I would say the culture looks very much like ours. So very much uh, marriage can be redefined. Uh, life can be redefined. Uh, human dignity can be redefined. Uh, and absolutely no adherence to any one standard of morality. And so that's the fruit of relativism. And we're seeing the fruit of relativism all around us, right? I mean, even at college campuses, I mean, you have, you have kids that are going and paying $50,000, $60,000 to get an education so they can walk away afterwards saying, I don't know that I even exist because they don't believe in absolute truth and therefore they can't know for certain of their own existence. So that's something of the futility of a worldview like deism and where it leads. Therefore, when we get to Scripture... We have what Scripture calls a sure word of prophecy, a sure word of prophecy. So I want to talk a little bit about the concept of inspiration and inerrancy, and so we'll take those things uh, together, inspiration and inerrancy. And so when I say that the Bible is, for example, inerrant, uh, no, that's not right, <clears throat> inerrant, 
inerrant. These are ours. Okay. Um, what we're saying is the Bible does not have errors. Okay. And so what was originally held by in terms of evangelical scholarship is that when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, what we mean by that is that when God inspired His Word, especially the autographs, the autographs are the actual letters of the authors of Scripture, Paul, Peter, John, James, Isaiah, Jeremiah, that those uh, original autographs were completely without error. Now, I would say this, that by extension, okay, what, what has survived in the copies, you've heard, you know, Pastor Chris was talking about this, but, you know, Chris was talking about textual criticism and what has survived in the textual tradition, the copies, the manuscripts that have come down throughout the ages of history. Now, I personally believe that, that we have the word, the inerrant word of God preserved to us today within the tradition of manuscripts, even if it's unbeknownst to us exactly which manuscripts those are. What I would say is we still have in our possession the inerrant word of God. But, strictly speaking, inerrancy definitely is claiming, contrary to liberal scholarship, that the Bible is free of error in its autographs, that they didn't make any errors whatsoever. Now, <clears throat> now let me ask you something about inerrancy. If you hold to the doctrine of inerrancy, okay, does that automatic, automatically make you an evangelical? Does that automatically make you evangelical or Christian, really? No. Right? Uh, can you think of any other groups outside of evangelical Christians that believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Witnesses? Correct. Mormons? Correct. Catholics believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. So just because you are an inerrantist, that doesn't automatically mean that you are orthodox. So we have to make that careful distinction that inerrancy is not the gospel, okay? Believing in inerrancy is, does not qualify as holding to a biblical gospel. You can believe something about the quality or character of Scripture, but that doesn't de facto make you an evangelical or puts you within the pale of orthodoxy. Okay, it's just a, really interesting that, you know, this doctrine cannot stand to, alone. It has to go with the message of Scripture as well. Yes, sir. Good question. Yes, sir. On the flip side of that. Can you hold to a biblical view of the gospel, but not hold to inerrancy <clears throat> of Scripture and be considered evangelical? Well, I was hoping that question wouldn't be asked. <laughs> That's a very controversial question. I would say yes. I would say that you can hold to the errancy of Scripture and still be a Christian. Now, I know that sounds extremely controversial, and the way that I've heard it explained is that within the pale of orthodoxy, you have certain trajectories of doctrines escalate in terms of their essential nature and so some people you know uh, this is what would be non-essential doctrine and this would be essential doctrine well or or actually no that's backwards actually this would be the non-essential and this would be the essential <clears throat> so anytime that you cross the line into non-essential did I have it right I'm sorry I did have it right this is in my notes, so I just, I'm thinking back to, to when I studied this and, and dealing with the fact that when you cross over an essential matter of the Christian faith, now you are in uh, what's known as heterodoxy. So you are in basically heresy. So here you would put the doctrine of justification. Here you would put the doctrine of uh, uh, the deity of Christ, let's say. 
things like that. This, this we would say, this is essential Christian doctrine. You cannot be a Christian and not believe in the Trinity, for example. But scholars, evangelical reform scholars, have always placed inerrancy just under the line, so to speak. Meaning, the doctrine is getting worse, okay? Um, you know, you can have, you know, Baptists over here and Presbyterians over here. One of them is wrong on their position of baptism. We know who that is. By the way. <laughs> okay, and that doesn't make their doctrine good, right? But they're nowhere near the line of heresy, okay? But now you, you believe in something like annihilationism, and now you're getting dangerously close to the doctrines that, are, that we would consider essential Christian doctrine. And, you know, uh, does anybody want to object to that or, or speak to that? Because that's a pretty, I understand that's a pretty controversial one. Yes, sir? Well, what would be so tough about that is the only reason you can have justification, deity of Christ, and the Trinity yep. is based on the Word of God. And if you think the Word of God has error, it would be really hard to hold to those very hard if, you, yeah. if your Word, if your basis can be, have error, you know? Yeah, it's very, so it's very difficult. inconsistent. Very dangerously inconsistent. I would say it's heresy. Is it damnable heresy? No. Yes, sir. I was going to say, would you extend inerrancy all the way to not just doctrine, but say even grammar structure? I would in the autographs. In the autographs. That's my okay. position. It's actually a Lutheran position. Luther held to the same position that even down to the very letters, the authors of Scripture got nothing wrong. But you wouldn't say so in uh, translation of English, Korean, Chinese, any of that, there would have to be, if there was an error I found in punctuation, no. that I could still call it in there. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The doctrinal issue is very hard. Like John Owen, great Puritan divine, right? John Owen said that the, even the Hebrew vowel points were inspired by God and were inerrant. You know, he went so far as to do that, and, you know, pretty much the whole Hebrew, you know, world scholarship condemned that. That position, you know, because the vowel points are sort of arbitrary, you know what I mean? Especially we're so so removed from the original time of the, those critical marks. Uh, I saw some other questions now. Got it? Chris got it for you? Okay. Yeah, so anyway, so inerrancy is very, very important. We don't want to diminish the importance of inerrancy, certainly. And we'll actually get to the implications of believing in an inerrant word um, and not believing in an inerrant, inerrant word. But what I want to stress is that inerrancy is what the Bible claims for itself. So as a believer, we have really a decision to make. When we study the prayer of David, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, he says, Now, O Lord God, your words are truth. And so we either adhere to what David is praying there, that God's word is truth. And then... Of course, you know that Scripture everywhere um, condemns the idea that it is even possible for God to lie. It simply is not possible for God to lie to us. So if God is telling us on the one hand that he has given us a reliable word, that he has given us a revelation that is truth, and then at the same time we can discover through you know, critical scholarship that, no, there are actually errors in the Bible, the Bible's not reliable, well, then God has revealed a lie to us, or God has, re God has not pre uh, preserved his word as he promised to do. Uh, all of those things have massive implications for how we see uh, Scripture. Um, but God did choose to reveal, and he chose to reveal that which was settled 
his word of God, really for God, is not up for debate. And this is what I thought, you know, heaven is a place where God's will is done perfectly, right? We know the Lord's Prayer, Lord, your will be done on, on earth, even as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's will is done perfectly. There is no deviation from the will of God. Why? Because there is no sin. There is no contradiction to the glory of God, the standards of God, and the will of God. And so, according to Psalm 119, it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. See, God has already settled the matter. So it's almost like these, all these debates about inerrancy, they exist on earth. And I would say they only exist on earth because of the effects of sin, because of our fallible, errant minds trying to interpret infallible and inerrant scripture. That would be the only reason why. But as far as God is concerned, God's word is perfect. It cannot lie. That's why in Scripture it condemns the idea of either adding to Scripture or taking away from Scripture. Right? Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4, I think it is, and Revelation chapter 22, uh, tells us that, that God's Word, you can't add to the Word of God. Proverbs said, if you add to the Word of God, He will, he will find you out to be a fool, a liar. You know, God, will, God will reprove you. So, <clears throat> so. Paul uh, saw that the, the word of God was not just true, but it was so true that he was willing to live his whole life based upon it, right? And that's what we're doing. So Acts 24, verse 14, there you see that the Apostle Paul is saying, look, my whole life, my whole ministry, everything that I do is built upon the law and what is written in the prophets. But if what is written in the law and if what is written in the prophets is neither reliable nor inerrant, and therefore not inspired by God or inspired in such a way that it's not trustworthy, it's not reliable, you can't build your life on it. And that's the thing, guys. If, I'm, if I wake up every day doubting, like, is this God's word? Is this really God's word? You know what I mean? Then maybe I shouldn't even go to church today. You know what I mean? Because the concept of going to church comes from the word of God. Maybe I shouldn't even preach the Bible with conviction today because conviction presupposes trust. It presupposes that you have confidence in the word of God. And so, yes, the doctrine of inerrancy is, is you know, that's a, that's a really big one. You know, I would say if I could build that graph again, if I can put that graph up here again, if you believe that the autographs are errant, I'd put you even closer, maybe right on the line. <laughs> you know, it's not good for your worldview as a Christian. Um, now, everything in the Old Testament is valued by the New Testament as reliable Scripture. So already by the time the New Testament is written, you have the authors of the New Testament looking at the, at the Word of God that has already been canonized, right? We studied the canon already. What has already been accepted as the body of, of, of Christian truth, okay? And that body of Christian truth is reliable according to Scripture, according to the New Testament. Romans chapter 15, for example, Romans 15, verse 4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, you see that? The encouragement of the scriptures, oh, one second, I'm sorry about this. Uh, he says, We might have hope. You see that? Our hope very much relies on on the capacity of encouraging ourselves according to the scriptures, the reliability of the scriptures. In the same way, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, Now these things happen to them as an example. Talking about those in the Old Testament, Israel, the mistakes that they made. 
It says, these things that were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Isn't that amazing? We are described, the new covenant age is described as the people upon whom the ends of the ages has come. That's it. God's final revelation to man through Jesus Christ. God's final redemptive acts through Jesus Christ. There's nothing left. We're not looking for a future exodus. We're not looking for a future prophet. We're not looking for a future deliverer. We're not looking for anything in the future other than the return of Christ that will bring the consummation to an end. Um, <clears throat> so, the reason why is because all of Scripture, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, now this is a verse that every single one of us should know and maybe even memorize. All of Scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. We should all just know this text because it uses the word inspired. Inspired, okay? Inspired. Now, inspired is an interesting word. It comes from two, uh, uh, two Greek words. It comes from the word that means God and the word that means literally breath or wind. And so that's why you've heard people say, well, this Greek word, uh, 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 what, what, what is the word? Uh, the, uh, Theonustos, that's how you pronounce it. Man, I lost my putting there. Sorry. Trying to transition sometimes from English to Greek is not that easy. But Theonustos is the Greek word, the compound word that literally means God breathed. God breathed. And it's just, it's just basically a description of what happened when people wrote the word of God. God's breath blew if you would, into these men to write down Holy Scripture. They were inspired in the highest sense of the word. Uh, C.S. Lewis has made a very dangerous statement when he says that the inspiration of Scripture is like the inspiration of other Scripture, that people can become inspired to write certain things. I think that's a terrible analogy, and he's taken a lot of flack for that, rightly so. Because the doctrine of biblical inspiration is not like inspiration that we might think, oh, I was inspired to write about a a journey. I was inspired to write an article about, you know, vacation I took or something like that. No. Inspiration literally means that God is the originator. God is the author of what was written. And that's really what's beautiful about the doctrine of inspiration is that what we're saying at the end of the day is that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation has one ultimate author. That's amazing because it means that the whole Bible is divinely designed and that the design of the Bible comes out of the mind of one person, namely God. I mean, the Trinitarian God of Scripture. So it's very, very important that we believe that. Um, getting to a little bit of history now, uh, there was a council that, was, that took place in the uh, National Council for Biblical Inerrancy, the International Council for Biblical Inerrancy that took place in 1977. Some of those guys that were there, many of them are still alive, uh, that were present there. Um, some of you have heard uh, next year at the Shepherds Conference, um, Wally, Robert, you guys know that especially, right? You guys felt it in your wallet as soon as we heard about it. A uh, little story about that. We're at the Shepherds Conference, and John, John MacArthur announces that next year they're going to have a summit on inerrancy. So they're going to open up the controversy of the, Inter the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy 1977, they're going to revisit that whole controversy because there are fresh arguments, fresh attacks 
and new scholarship, which is really not new, right? Nothing new under the sun. But there are new waves of attack upon the doctrine of inerrancy, and they're holding a virtual summit of scholars that are going to come in and reaffirm what was done at this council. At this council, they came up with a declaration, a statement, various articles of affirmations or denials of what we believe and what we do not believe about inerrancy. And so, for example, let me give you a couple of those. First, an affirmation. He says, uh, this is Article uh, 12 of the, of the, do- the declaration they, they came up with. It says that we affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. And then what we deny. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypothesis about the Earth's history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. Well, that's really interesting because what they're saying there is not only are they believing in the reliability, the inerrancy of Scripture, but they're also saying that science does not trump Scripture. So it doesn't matter what modern-day physicists are saying about the age of the Earth, right? What I like about this is they're they're taking an old uh, young Earth position of creation, which is also very good, also good conservative uh, position on that. What they're saying is that regardless of of the discoveries of science, we, we are not are going to allow that to dictate what we believe about Genesis 1. You know, we're just not going to do that. So many people are. There's a whole group out there, Biologos, who's a, you, know, you know, some evangelical scholars are in, in that, that they believe that, yes, that we should interpret Genesis 1 in light of recent scientific discovery. What's the problem with that? Next year they'll discover something new they'll have to readjust for that's elevate science above scripture. Well, two things, right? Number one, science is a is is a belief that is in flux. Science is constantly changing. It's not a it's not a, a matter of settled you know truth. Science is always evolving. Pardon the pun. It's always changing, right? And it's always progressing. So so they say. I mean, I was just reading not too long ago, I think last year, I was reading about a physics journal that was written, written by Stephen Hawking, the famous astrophysics guy, you know, and he wrote a, a theory of how black holes were created, okay? And for 20 years, if you went to college and you studied the, the discovery of how black holes evolved and how they were created, you had to adopt Stephen Hawking's position. Well, guess what? Ten years later, another physicist refuted everything that Hawking's taught, and they had to revise all the journals. <laughs> so now you had to go with a different theory of how black holes are created. That's the problem with science. Modern biology, modern science, is that it's constantly changing. The theories are always uh, becoming you know, uh, uh, revised, and therefore that is no ultimate standard of truth. And therefore we cannot go to science as the infallible source of our truth. Scripture is, you know what I mean? You know, another, pro- another problem, before I go to you, Mike, another problem with believing in uh, evolution, for example, or millions or billions of years, is that what you're saying is that now, now it's infringing upon another doctrine of Scripture, namely the perpiscuity of Scripture. You guys know what the perpiscuity yeah. of Scripture is? The clarity. The clarity of Scripture. That, that Scripture is clear, it's plain, okay, what it's saying. <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't know about that. Some of the scripture's pretty tough. <laughs> but what we're saying is that on matters of essential Christian doctrine, it's plain. 
And what you're saying is that the people that Moses was writing to, you know, in the, you know, whatever, you know, back in the, you know, back in the, the patriarchal history, right after that, that those people had no idea what Moses was talking about. That, 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 Mo, that they had no idea how old the earth really was. That what he wrote was really hidden. That we had to wait thousands of years to finally discover how old the earth is, even though Genesis had already said how old it was. Yes, sir. Well, I just want to make a comment as you're speaking on this class. What you're talking about is who knows the mind of God? Yeah. They try to <clears throat> dismantle it any way they can. By using science or whatever it is they do. Mm -hmm. They're constantly trying to discredit God. Yeah. In, in one shape mm -hmm. or another. Yeah, yeah, that's one right. So it's the tricks of the devil. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's correct. And I think that, you know, it also points out that Scripture is not limited. And I like that because it says it's not exclusive of assertions in the field of history and science, which means this, that, and this is very important that we believe this, because what that is saying is that Scripture informs history. Okay. Scripture informs what history is, how history works. What is human history all about? You can't study the history of humanities without knowing something about what God intends for humanity, or else you're 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 you're, you're you know you're 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 striking out in the dark. I mean, you don't know where humanity is even going, what the purpose of life is. You know what the purpose of humanity is. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but there's like hundreds of nuclear weapons right now contained in silos all across this globe. I mean. <laughs> So is man just going to annihilate himself? I mean, if you believe in the doctrine of total depravity, it looks pretty good that we will, right? But thankfully, we know the answer to that. No, he won't. God will not allow man to annihilate himself. God has a purpose for man, so he will intervene. He will redeem his people and destroy his enemies, and there will be a culmination of human history. So scripture must be able to inform history, just like it has to be able to inform science. Any questions or observations on any of that? I know that's just kind of a lot. Nothing? Sure? Yeah. Well, yes, sir. I was just going to say, within the realm of, say, evangelism, mm -hmm. I think we probably shouldn't make the mistake of using what they would say, science versus religion. I would use, because I don't like that term, <clears throat> I would say a good method of discovery versus a bad method of discovery. Very, very good. Rather, yeah. Because it always pits one against the other, but science, true science, is not against God or religion. That's right. So Very true. I, I want to make sure that you know yeah. I see I see it a lot, not a, because I like science, yeah. but I don't want them to be able to determine how I discover something. Right, that's right, that's correct, and, and that's take monopoly on the term yeah. science. Mm -hmm. And we always we always want to determine you know the difference between you know let's say for example I'm not against science. macro evolution versus micro evolution. Right, we don't we don't have any problem with. Uh, species or kinds of animals adapting within their kind. You know what I mean? In other words, you, know, you got little dogs, you got big dogs, but guess what? You got a dog. You know I mean, a dog's not going to turn into a tomato. I mean, it's just that simple. <laughs> <laughs> or a tomato into a dog. I mean, you know, whatever you want to. Our dog might turn into a potato. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Our dog, Trish. Our dog's kind of like a potato. <laughs> she doesn't really move around very much. No, but I was going to say, well, last weekend I was gentleman I just handed him one of my um, you know tracks with the outfit on it that says IQ test what kind of outfit was this and what year was it worn 
So I just handed it to him, and he seemed really engulfed in it, so I just let, let the track do its work. Five minutes later, he leans over and he goes, Did you read, have you read the whole back of this? And I was going to tell him, well, yeah, I wrote it. <laughs> but I didn't want him to beat me up, so I just said, um, yes, you know, trembling. And he said, um, it's garbage. And, and, and years ago, I would have probably said, oh, okay, and never said a word. But, um, you know, I just asked him his name. He said it was Stephanie. He told me that he was from Germany and that he was an um, astrophysicist and, um, and from Germany, so one of those smart guys. And, um, and uh, thankfully, I know Jason Lyle, who's another astrophysicist. <laughs> I mentioned his name. But, but the point was, was that I asked him, I said, by what standard do you say that it's garbage? Yeah. And he said, well, I just feel. I said, so then you're the standard? You're, so then what you feel is a standard for saying that this is garbage? And I said, let me ask you a quick question. What religion are you? And he said, well, I'm an agnostic. I was raised Catholic, but I'm agnostic you know, now. And um, I said, could you be wrong about everything you know? And he said, yes. And I said, so then actually this that you just, the thing that you just called garbage could actually be very valuable since you could be wrong about everything you know. And um, he just started laughing. Yeah. And by the end of the conversation, um, he ends up admitting to me that he went to Jerusalem by himself to like try to find God and find, try to find out truth. And you know what I wanted to tell him was you didn't need to go all that way and spend five thousand. What is it about Jerusalem? <laughs> what is it about Jerusalem? People think they're going to find God in Jerusalem. I mean, God just had me sit next to you right now at the airport to tell you truth. But by the time we left, um, he was grateful and he he kept the track and wanted another one. And I gave him oh. evolution versus God. I'm so grateful for the Bible. You know what I mean? I mean, we were. I mean, my wife and I. We were in Jerusalem. What, 2011 or something like that? And we're out there and we're standing out on. Uh, we're we're in Capernaum. That's like Jesus' hub of operations, and we're up where, around the, the, the area where he supposedly gave the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and we're standing out there, and we're out in the middle of nowhere. We're filming with Ray Comfort and all of that, and, and uh, we see this guy walking up to us, you know, and he, he literally looked like a John the Baptist kind of dude. He, he had like these beaten up sandals, he was real scruffy, big beard, I mean, he looked like a homeless guy, and I mean, something out of a movie, so he comes walking up to us, and he goes, and we're, you know, we ask him what he's doing. He tells us he's walking on a pilgrimage from France all the way to Jerusalem. Like, you're walking from France to Jerusalem? We're like, how long have you been walking? He's like, well, about four months. And we're like, what are you doing that for? And he said, because I want to atone for my sins. So the guy is walking for four months thinking that's going to wash his sins away. And we're like, man, we got the best news yeah. in the whole world for you. <laughs> you don't got to take another step. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll buy you a plane ticket home, buddy. Man, you know? You know, re repent and believe. You don't got to take one more step, you know? <laughs> Praise God for salvation, right? <laughs> Praise God that you're not dying on your deathbed one day. And somebody tells you, oh, no, sorry, you got to get up and go to Jerusalem. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> what? You know, salvation is, you know. The matter of the heart. So <clears throat> back to our subject here. I don't know how my wife derailed this whole conversation of that. But <clears throat> what we're not saying with the doctrine of inerrancy, therefore, is that Scripture cannot make statements that are not as precise as science, let's say, for example, would like. For example, I gave the, the example uh, yesterday at our men's group that, you know, in Scripture, you have generalizations that are being spoken of. For example, in the book of Acts, it says that 3,000 souls were added to the church. Well, who's to say they weren't rounding up? Was it possible that there were 
2,997 souls, to be precise. It was 3,000 souls the exact number? Okay, we talk about that, you know, like, for example, when we talk about 9-11, right? We say 3,000 souls perished on that day. Well, really, the exact number of 9-11 is something like what? Somebody would know that. Ryan, you would probably know the number. It's of that. like 2,700. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's probably a more precise number, but it's just a generalization. And what it is, is it just allows for a reasonable use of language. You know, Jesus said in, in, in Matthew 17 that the mustard seed is the smallest seed out of all the seeds. Well, technically speaking, that's not true. There are seeds that are smaller than a mustard seed. So is Jesus making a scientific error and therefore we should throw the Bible out because it's not without error? No, but the Bible also should be given the same freedom to speak that we speak with, right? We say, oh man, that was the smallest house I've ever seen in my life. Is that really the smallest house you've ever seen? <laughs> you know, the, the Word of God speaks with human idioms. So we have to allow the Word of God to speak and make use of all of its literary genres in Scripture. And there's a lot of them. Uh, the language in Scripture is really fascinating. When you look at Scripture, what it is, it's amazing how many tools, how many devices, how many rules of grammar, how many laws of language, how many types of genres are in the Word of God. It's really mind-blowing what God has done. I mean, parable, didactic, apocalyptic, historic, you know, poetic, uh, erotic. Uh, there is all sorts of different types of language that Scripture uses. Um, also, uh, one thing that has often been brought against uh, Scripture uh, as being an errant is the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. Oftentimes people will look at the way New Testament authors quote the Old Testament and they say, well, it's not an exact quotation. And that's probably because quotation is not the right word. Maybe we should be using the word citation. It cites a certain section of Scripture and at times even generalizes the sum of the gist of the words of Scripture. And it has no problem in doing so because it serves its purpose never violating what has been written beforehand. As a matter of fact, Jesus, we can learn this from Jesus. You know, a lot of people don't understand. Jesus was very comfortable using a translation of the Bible. You know, this is one of those classic arguments you hear all the time. Oh, the Bible, it's been translated so many times. You know, it's like the telephone game. One person tells it to the next person by the end of the line, you know, the message is so convoluted you can't trust it. Well, really, I mean, Jesus had no problem trusting in a good translation of the Bible. And I've said this before. What translation did Jesus use? The Septuagint. The Septuagint. Jesus. The good for you guys. The ESV. Come on. I'm gonna send that. I'm gonna send that clip to Crossway. I know, huh? Come on, that's ridiculous. You know it was the NASB. Yeah, Jesus used the Greek Septuagint. He used the translation of the Hebrew into Greek, and he quoted it with total confidence that what he was quoting was the reliable word of God. That's why if you have a good, reliable, literal, trans preferably a more literal translation like the NASB or the ESV, you know. Um, by the way, how many people in here have an ESV? Right, Chris? One, two, three, four. I have one. How many people, I'm sorry, use an, e an ESV? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Wow. Wow. 
<laughs> okay, moving on. That's a lot. I know. Uh, yeah, so basically, you know, when you come to the problems of what is it, what, what is at stake when you, when you hold to an errant position, okay? We have an inerrant position. When you have an errant position, for example, um, I think you're at a major disadvantage, right? Number one, you have to admit that the nature of revelation is capricious, and you don't know what is reliable and what is not reliable. Let me read to you something that Grudem says. He says, once we've become convinced that God has spoken falsely to us in some minor matters of scripture, then we realize that God is capable of speaking falsely to us. This will have a detrimental effect on the, our ability to take God at his word, to trust him completely or obey him fully in the rest of scripture. That's exactly right. Once you erode the foundation of your confidence, your biblical confidence, I mean, you're going to be you're going to be wondering, man, should I trust God in anything? You know what I mean? What about my own salvation? The things He said about me being saved? Wow! So really, an an, an errant position, logically speaking, leads you right back to the hopelessness that God saved you from, because you are left, you know, without witness, without truth. You're left without a standard to know ultimate right and wrong. Um, this is what the, um, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Robert. I was going to just make a point on, on that exact point that you just made. Uh, I was witnessing to some kid that said he's been in conversations left and right with you over the last couple of years uh, at UNT, and he, he would consider himself to be a Christian, you know, quote unquote, but he does not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. And the point you just made that if you don't hold to an inerrant position, it's really hard to actually know that you're saved. Yeah. And that's exactly the the spot that he's in. He's like, I feel pretty good about it, of where I'm going to end up where I, you know, and I'm just like, that is the most fearful position that I can think of. Yeah. Um, but but I just wanted to touch on that, that that's the exact notion that people have if they do not hold to inerrancy of Scripture. Yeah, let me read you a statement from the Council of Biblical Inerrancy. It said this. This is many years ago, 1977, you know. Some of us were barely alive back then. Some of us were not alive back then, right? This is what, this is what they said. They said, since the Renaissance, and more particularly since the Enlightenment, worldviews have been developed in which which involve skepticism about, Christ, about basic Christian tenets. Such are the agnostics, which deny that God is knowable, the rationalists, which deny that God is incomprehensible, the idealists, which deny that God is transcendent, and the existentialists, which, deny which denies the rationality of his relationship with us. When, the, when these un- and anti-biblical uh, principles seep into man's the theologies at a presuppositional level, as today they frequently do, faithful interpretation of Scripture becomes impossible. So it's like almost like, you know, what the inerrant position does is it forces you into a particular worldview like we started out with. It forces you to adopt a biblical worldview because without it, all you're left with is worldviews like agnosticism, rationalism, idealism, you know, existentialism. All of those types of worldview ultimately erode your your confidence in the ability to know truth, the ability to know anything for certain, I mean, which is really big. And then the other thing, too, is if, if Scripture is not inerrant, then the nature of God himself is suspect. If we can't trust God with the, the validity of his word, what other things can we not trust God about? 
You see? So it just throws into confusion the whole character of God. And then lastly, the nature of theology itself is suspect. So if Scripture is not to be trusted in matters of history or social science or science at all, how are we to trust the matters of faith? That's absolutely true. If, if Scripture can't be trusted dealing with scientific facts, especially dealing with the big facts of how the universe came to be, but, but, but other things as well, the nature of man, these types of things. I know psychology would want to teach us something different about the nature of man, but the nature of man is determined by Scripture, not by psychology or physiology or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? Scripture tells us that man is inherently evil. Well, modern psychology would want us to believe that man is essentially good. Which, was, which is it? See, God has always put man in this predicament. He either has to, has to choose between the religion of man, man-made religion. It's what the Bible calls the uh, skenao, the, the worthless elementary things, the, the worthless elementary principles of man, which means this is all that man can come up with, these, these worthless principles of how to live. They're worthless because they ultimately lead to frustration and they end in futility. That's why they're worthless and they're ultimately not true. And so God is either going to put you in a position where you have to choose a religion of man versus the religion of God. You're either going to think autonomously or you're going to think analogously, meaning after God's own thinking. So you're either going to be the God of your own universe and pretend to be that, or you're going to believe in the God of the universe. Any closing comments or statements? Anything? No? Sure. I welcome any comments, questions, even objections. A reputation that I get when I talk to people about scripture is um, that they say um, that it was written by men. So what they say is like, I mean, it could be just people who was just feeling uh, spiritual and they just decided to write things and, and to make sense of it. And, and I think that one of the things that really helped me to understand that that is not the case, um, and just trying to be a little bit more in the evidentialism type of part, would be like, it will not make sense that all the scripture together makes sense and points to Jesus Christ if it was just random people through history writing yeah. whatever they think of. Right. And I'm just going to be inspired and write about what I think God is. I think it's, it would be, to me, it would be impossible that these random thoughts of people in such different stages of history will make sense and point everything to salvation in Jesus Christ. I don't think we're that smart to just put it together. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent point. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, you have 40-some-odd authors of Scripture writing over a 1,500 period of time, many of them on various continents, many of them not never meeting each other, mm -hmm. and yet writing perfect, harmonious theology. And just, you know, of course not. So we think we're that smart. So, so that's what makes sense yeah. to them. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Amen. So uh, next week we'll, we'll talk about um, maybe another aspect of Scripture. We'll see. All right, let's pray and uh, let's go to worship.